Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are here today with Michelle Gelfand. She has written the book most recently, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. She is a professor at the University of Maryland College Park, uh, uh, on uh, professor of psychology, and she's written a lot of things I'm sure you have not read because they've been in academic journals, but uh, this one you should read because it's uh, for people like you and me and, and super interesting. So I actually, first, first of all, Michelle, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I was about to just dive right in and then I remembered, oh, wait, Michelle's here. Let's <laughs> include her in this conversation. So I just want to read the first paragraph because I think it sets the stage so beautifully for your book and then uh, would love for you to talk a little bit about you know, what we mean by tight and loose cultures. Okay, so I'll just read this first part. It's 11 p.m. in Berlin. Not a single car is in sight, yet a pedestrian waits patiently at the crosswalk until the light turns green. Meanwhile, 4,000 miles away in Boston, at rush hour, commuters flout the do not cross sign as they dart in front of cabs. To the south, where it's 8 p.m. in Sao Paulo, Locals are frolicking in string bikinis in public parks. Up in Silicon Valley, it's mid-afternoon, and t-shirted employees at Google are playing a game of ping-pong. And in Zurich, at the Swiss bank UBS, which for years mandated a 44-page dress code, executives burning the midnight oil have barely loosened their ties. So you're painting this picture of a, an incredibly diverse world culturally, and, and hinting and foreshadowing it at the main point of your book about sort of tight and loose cultures, you know, T-shirts and ties, you know, that are unloosened at midnight. Can you explain a little bit about this concept? Sure. So um, I'm a cross-cultural psychologist. So I study human behavior all around the world from ancient Sparta to Singapore, from Athens to Alabama, and from the Silicon Valley into the military. And I try to understand what are the deeper cultural codes that are driving our behavior. So rather than focusing on superficial kind of characteristics like red versus blue or east versus west, religious versus secular, we try as cross-cultural psychologists to really dig deeper to understand the norms and values that are driving our behavior. And that's really what the book is about. It really addresses a fundamental aspect of human sociality, which is how strictly we adhere to social norms. And it's really interesting, like culture is invisible, we take it for granted, um, it's omnipresent, but invisible. And norms are just like that. So imagine a world where we don't have social norms, where you walk outside of your house naked every day and people drive on the right or the left side of the street, depending on their mood and don't follow stop signs. Or imagine, you know, you walk in the elevator and people are facing backwards and so or social... people are having sex everywhere and not in private settings. I we follow to... rules all the time. I hate to have talked over you right when you were saying that people no, are having sex okay. everywhere. No, but that was the wrong line to talk <laughs> over. Um, but so so when you say social norm, let's just let's because I think the clarity around mm-hmm. the conversation will be helpful. So social norm, what do you mean? So I mean these unwritten rules or behavior that we've invented to help create predictability and coordination across groups. Okay, and great. sometimes social norms are very sort of basic, like 
you know, cover your mouth when you sneeze or drive on the right side of the road in certain countries. Um, say hello when you answer the phone. In fact, we need social norms. Imagine a world where you don't have them. We could not coordinate on any basis and societies, organizations, families would collapse. So what's the difference between social norms and culture? Well, social norms are an important part of culture. Culture is this kind of big elephant that includes norms, values, beliefs. And we need these kinds of uh, codes in order to understand how we should behave, what's appropriate in certain contexts. And we socialize our children to be good cultural citizens. This is what we call cultural intelligence. And what I find, and this is based on research across countries, across states, across organizations, even our own households, that groups vary predictably in terms of how strictly they adhere to rules. I call these tight cultures, and they have really very strict rules and punishments if you deviate as compared to groups that are more permissive, that are looser, that have a wider range of variable behavior that's acceptable. And this distinction affects a lot of things all around us, from politics to parenting, from nations to neurons. And that's what the book's about. So it's not that um, cultures either have strong social norms or not. It's that the rule of adhering to everybody has strong social norms. It's the 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 requirement of the culture to adhere to those social norms is what uh, is what is disparate between cultures between what you're calling tight and loose cultures. Yeah, cultures have need norms, but some have more clear norms that are reliably enforced, and some have norms that are just kind of accepted when you deviate from them. But all countries, for example, have rules, but we can differentiate countries in a paper I published in Science a few years ago that lean tight versus those that lean loose. So, for example, in our research, Singapore, Japan, Germany, Austria veered tight, even though they have some domains in their culture that are loose. And likewise, Brazil, Greece, the U.S. to some extent, the Netherlands veered looser. Um, they also have some domains that are tight. But what's really fascinating is the question of why do these differences evolve in the first place and what consequences do they have for human groups? And that's what I address in the book because culture isn't random. It evolves for good reasons that help us to understand why we have so much diversity around the world when it comes to the adherence to social rules. Okay, so I want to definitely get into the why in a minute. Before that, I want to just play around with this tight, loose culture concept um, a little more. So you mentioned Japan is a really tight culture. Uh, uh, you know, when I think of Japan, and by the way, is England a tight culture or a loose culture? It's tighter than the U.S. in our okay, data. Okay, great. So that I would have thought the same thing. But when I think of this, like, underground um, social norms in Japan or yep. in England, it's like sex shops and, like, this bar alcoholic culture. Like, a, there's, like, all this stuff that goes on. Yep in what you would call tight culture that feels to yeah. me like a total deviation from the social norm and maybe yeah. it's its own social norm. So I'm curious to hear your perspective yeah. on that. Well, this is a really good point because like I said, all cultures have some domains that are the opposite of their dominant programming. In Japan, which is really pretty tight, there are certain domains where people let off steam, just like that you talked about. In Iran, that tends to be pretty tight, obviously, there's a huge underground of looseness. So you can think about these as um, tendencies that tend to be dominant in a culture, but then there's certainly context where there's looseness or tightness. Another good example is in the U.S. We veer pretty loose, with some exceptions, certain states, uh, but there's domains that are pretty tight. And 
the tightness tends to evolve on values that are really important. Like, for example, privacy is a super important value in the United States. So we develop a lot of rules around privacy. I'm not just going to show up to your house tonight and say, hey, cook me some dinner. We really regulate that domain very strongly. We regulate human rights very strongly because it's really a fundamental value. So when I other cultures like New Zealand, they're also loose and they have other domains that are highly regulated, like being egalitarian. So it's really super interesting to zoom in and zoom out to find the levels of tightness and looseness in, in societies. So when I think of those examples too, and I think of the U.S. and privacy, and I think of, and you mentioned these terms in your book also, um, this sort of idea of collectivist versus individualist culture, right? That there's a culture where it's kind of more about me as an individual versus a collectivist culture, which is all about the community and what's, you know, and, and, and what's appropriate within the community and the connections of the community. And when I think about dividing the world in that way, I think, well, America might be a loose culture, which might be explained by being an individualist culture, which explains the privacy. Because if I'm an individualist, it's like, I, I don't want you to invade my space. And I want, I'm kind of libertarian. I want to do whatever I want to do. And in a collectivist culture, you would see that, yes, we have to adhere to more social norms because it's about the group. And by the way, it's okay for you to come into my house uh, at any time because it's about the group. Yeah. So I'm wondering how, like, I, I'm just wondering for you to compare and contrast or look at this sure. idea of individualist versus collective and whether, you know, kind of how that uh, interweaves yeah. with tight versus loose. This is a really important question. In fact, my advisor, Harry Triandis, and I worked a lot on the concept of individual collectivism. And for many years, that's all we talked about in cross-cultural psychology. And we were confounding tightness and collectivism. Turns out, when I was running the science data and other studies, both pre-industrial societies, U.S. 50 states, the correlation between tightness and collective is about 0.4. And in, in statistical terms, that's not huge. It's decent, but it's really they're distinct constructs. And so what you can think about is that we've been equating tight and collectivistic and loose and individualistic when, in fact, we're missing out on the off-diagonal. So, for example, Germany is pretty individualistic, but it's quite tight. Brazil is pretty collectivistic, but it's quite loose. And a lot of other Spanish cultures follow that pattern. So they're really distinct contexts. But what you can imagine is that now when we start to open up the cultural toolbox, we can start looking at them in combination and start to predict some interesting things. So it's not one or the other. They're related, but they're distinct. Okay. And, you know, I uh, one more question around this, this um, duality which is generally, full disclosure, I kind of don't like dualities. And I don't like dualities because, and I don't like, like I, I wrote uh, in my latest book and, and also I wrote an article for HBR around like why I don't like personality assessments, right? Because they, in my view, they, they simplify things to some degree that we should continue to be curious about. And that once we have the sort of you know, easy answer. Once I know you're an ENTJ, then I'm no longer curious about you. I just kind of know that this is sort of the profile you fit and I'll respond to that profile. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. I'm curious about, and, and I feel like there's a lot of complexity in your writing and in, in kind of how you describe this. And I'm, I'm just, I'm curious about the usefulness and also, and, and I mean that like, I'm not saying I doubt the usefulness. I'm curious about the usefulness and also the danger yeah. This, this is a great question. I mean, first of all, tight loose is a continuum. It's not a duality. 
And also it's important, like I mentioned, that we can zoom in and try to find domains that are tight or loose. In our own household, we can negotiate the levels of tight and loose. It's a negotiable construct, it's not static. I find that there's reasons why it develops chronically, but it can be easily negotiated. And I do this a lot with my own kids. I advocate leaders to negotiate this in their organizations when they're getting either too tight or too loose and so forth. So with that said, it's not a static concept. It's not a dichotomy. It's a continuum and it's dynamic. Psychologists and other scientists try to understand what we see as sort of rules for human behavior. So of course, every individual, to your point, is unique. Every person is unique, but we also try to understand other more parsimonious dimensions on which people vary to help us reduce the complexity and not stereotype, to still sort of suggest, well, even if you have this attribute, you might be some, somewhat different in different situations. But we try to come up with universal laws that help us understand and predict behavior. And if you take the perspective that everyone's unique or every culture is so different that you can never come up with these underlying dimensions, then we don't have much to predict. So that's why we do it. And we try to make, have a happy medium of saying that it's a continuum and it's dynamic and that um, it can be measured and it can be negotiated. So that's kind of how I think about it. Right. And, and when we talk about, you know, America generally being loose and you made this great distinction, which I think is really important that that's, you know, that it, it depends, right? Because there's certain states where they're not. And I, um, I'm, I'm Jewish from New York. My wife is Episcopalian from Savannah, Georgia. And when I go down to, and you know, and we lived in Savannah for three years, and you know, Savannah is a very different culture than New York. And I would yep, say that like Southern year. culture, you know, is closer to Japan in some ways. Like what I mean by that is they've got like really strong social norms. I would consider it to be a very tight culture with an underbelly, you know, with, with like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a sense of, <laughs> of looseness coming out in ways that are, are sort of deviant from the, the sort of publicized social norm. So I'm wondering, can we really look at the U.S. and say it's a certain type of culture when there's such diversity within the states? Or how do we explain that diversity? Because yeah. well, I, mean, I want this to flow into this question of why. Because yeah, if, right. you know, like why we have these cultural norms feels important. Yeah, well, think, I want to, but before we get into the U.S. 50 states, I want to ask you a little sort of thought experiment. So when you're in a library, tight or loose? Um, well, it's funny. Growing up, right? I don't know how old you are, but growing up, I would say tight. Nowadays, it feels like libraries are a lot looser. <laughs> well, they are. Well, I mean, compared to a funeral, funeral tight or loose. Right. So funeral tight. <laughs> Okay, so we can think about, you know, party, tight Unless loose. we're in New Orleans. And then in New yeah, Orleans, well, it's kind of loose, <laughs> right? Well, well party is, is loose. That's right. I mean, we can differentiate situations. So each of us constantly navigates the strength of norms. I would ask you to go into a library today and start singing, start dancing. I've always tried to do this, like violate norms. I just gave a talk at the Navy at a grant meeting yesterday. If I was giving my talk, I started singing, dancing, great, breaking out some bourbon, they'd be like, why did you fund this crazy woman? Like, that's a tight situation. We constantly, as humans, are navigating the strength of norms without even realizing it. But what I find in my research is that, predictably, the same situation could be much tighter, could have much reduced range of, of behaviors that are acceptable in different cultures or different states. And that's what we can see as a tightness. So... It, this is the important thing is that we actually, even at the everyday level, in our everyday lives, whether it's north or south, are actually navigating this at the situational level. And we can measure it and show that. Um, but back to my, my point. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the United States, in our, in our general data analysis, shows to be looser. We are, and this is going to get into the reason why it develops. So we're 
And, you know, I always ask people, why do you think groups veer tight or loose? There's no common religion, tradition, geography. Um, and it turns out that a pretty simple prediction that we tested was that groups that have a lot of threat, whether it's from Mother Nature, constant disasters, famines, or human-made threat, population density, invasions, um, and other types of um, threats that humans invoke on each other, those groups tend to need strong rules to coordinate to survive. Looser groups have less threat. And actually, my daughter, when she was eight, asked me, are we worried about Mexico and Canada invading us anytime? And of course, nowadays, some people think that. But the point is that the United States as a country, as a baby country, has had far less conflict and natural disasters as a nation. We're separated by two oceans from the rest, many other continents, compared to East Asia and some parts of Europe. And when we measure the number of invasions over 100 years, the number of natural disasters, the amount of population density, even going back to 1500, we see a really clear pattern. Those contexts that have a lot of threat develop stronger rules to survive. And it's the same thing with the U.S. 50 states. The states that tend to veer tight, including the South and some parts of the Midwest, Kansas, Indiana, they tend to have a lot more disasters. Organizations that veer tighter tend to have a lot of coordination needs. They have more threat or they have more accountability due to um, public um, uh, oversight. And so this principle is pretty um, much replicated across different levels of analysis. And that's just to say that cultures evolve for good reasons. Not all tight cultures are threatened and not all loose cultures are on easy street. But it helps us to understand and predict why is, for example, why is gum banned in Singapore? Like that seems preposterous to us. Like that as an American, I can judge that very ethnocentrically. But it turns out that Singapore has 20,000 people per square mile. There's a lot of mouths per capita. And people were chewing gum and throwing it on the floor. And it was causing massive problems in Singapore. It was causing trains to be delayed. It was, it was blocking sensors and elevators. So Lee Kuan Yew said, guys, we have a lot of threat here. We got to ban gum. In the US, that would seem absolutely ridiculous. And again, not all cultural differences evolve for good reasons, but many do. And this is what, as cultural psychologists, we want to try to understand. How can we become more culturally intelligent? Right. And that sort of answers, you know, you share this great experiment in the book about uh, where people feel like they have higher population density in, in their immediate environment, they become tighter. And, and that explains it. Like, you know, you, the example yeah. you gave of Singapore, which is when they're super tight population density and then people are smacking when they're, when, you know, smacking <laughs> their food when they eat, you're going to say, okay, from now on, everyone's only allowed to sip in a soda. You know, like we're just, yeah. like, our, our tolerance. <laughs> That's right. But then I think also well, a place like New York, which is actually quite, you know, as dense as it gets, but quite loose compared to yeah. places down south or even in the Midwest where complying with social norms feels much tighter. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm kind of curious about like, it's you know. It's a great question. I mean, what's interesting is that what also predicts looseness, of which I would say New York is as a native New Yorker, is anonymity and also a sense of diversity uh, and a lot of mobility because it's much harder to enforce norms in those kinds of contexts. Right. And New York, as far back as 1800, I read about in the book, you know, the places that became tighter loose and evolved to be tighter loose in the U.S. also had certain founding conditions. The people who settled in New York and had the chutzpah to go out to California were risk takers. And, this, and they had a lot of diversity very early on. So even though New York is very densely populated, that, that sense of population density is overridden in terms of mobility and diversity and accountability. Because, you know, if you don't call out people's norm violations, like you will, 
in tighter contacts, then you can behave kind of strangely. Right. <laughs> Actually, I'll say that Tokyo is certainly pretty highly densely populated. Um, but it's very tight, actually, and it has all the sort of you know, uh, trade-offs in terms of order. It's very synchronized. It's a very clean, um, but it also tends to be a little bit more uh, ethnocentric uh, and afraid of people who are different. And loose cultures, the book I talk a lot about this, they're really disorganized. They have very little synchrony, and they have a lot of self-regulation problems, but they tend to corner the market on openness and I'm being open to different people and to different ideas and to change. And so this order uh, and uh, openness trade-off applies to organizations, to states, and to, and to nations. Perfect segue. Let's talk about organizations and, and leaders and organizations. And, you know, what are the implications of this for leaders? Well, you know, it's first of all, it's really important to think about we live in organizations, you know, 24-7. And we need to understand the deeper cultural codes driving our behavior, and tight loose is certainly one of them, uh, among others. But we tend to ignore it. Uh, and as I mentioned, at first, it's really important to assess the level of tightness looseness in an organization. Some organizations, like airlines, need to veer tight. Others, like startups, need to veer loose. But sometimes organizations can get too extreme. And this is, becomes a problem. And my data suggests that moderation when it comes to tight loose is best. We might need to veer tight or loose given certain circumstances, but what happens is that some groups get too extreme. When you get too uh, tight, it gets too repressive and people are really afraid to disagree with people. This was like United a couple of years ago. And on the flip side, you can have organizations that veer loose, but get too loose and chaotic and disorganized. I talked about Tesla recently in an op-ed that suggests that these systems are getting out of whack. They need to, in the case of the tight cultures, insert some discretion. I call this flexible tightness. On the flip side, sometimes loose organizations get too loose and they need to insert some structure. And I call this structured looseness. And I would just mention that the best leaders are ambidextrous when it comes to tight loose. They know how to really deploy tightness and looseness in their organizations. Innovation is a great example. It requires looseness to create different ideas, but it requires tightness to implement them. So it's, there's a whole chapter on tightness in the book on this concept. And your sense of the role of the leader is to help kind of manage the sort of dilute the uh, intensity of the effect of one culture versus another. So to like sort of inject looseness a little bit into a tight culture and inject some tightness into a loose culture. When they need to. And also leaders, I, I just published um, an HBR paper on mergers and acquisitions between tight and loose cultures. And it's remarkable the price tag that you see when you have big differences between tight and loose when companies are merging. They have a lot of problems. And that's because the people and the practices and the leaders are really different in those organizations. The people in loose cultures tend to be more risk-taking and they're more open-minded. They have, they have flexible practices and very informal, and their leaders tend to be very visionary and collaborative. Tight cultures have very different DNA. They have people who are more conscientious, who are more prevention-focused. They have standardized practices that focus on efficiency. Uh, and they also have leaders who are quite independent. Think Daimler Chrysler. When they merged, it looked like it was going to be a marriage made in heaven. But what's fascinating is that companies ignore these kind of cultural differences, and they're about to kind of encounter the, this iceberg often when it's too late. And so this is also both within the organization to understand it, but clearly when you're trying to merge, it's really critical to understand tight loose. And so does this in some ways um, defy the whole concept of best practices? Because if you're dealing with lots of different cultures and different different ways of impacting those cultures, then 
you know, is, is everything in the particular and do we no longer really have a best practice? Because you could apply a best practice that really works in a loose culture. And if you applied it in a tight culture, it might really backfire. Well, I think that's right. I mean, there's so much about uh, Western management, textbooks, training that is really based on our own values and norms. Um, we Even when we send expatriates abroad, we tend to send them abroad because they're technically competent, not because they're culturally competent. And I just published a paper in Psych Science that looks at, again, what happens when people go from tight to loose cultures? Which people are the most likely to adapt to a tight culture? For example, we know that it's both personality and culture that matter. And we can pinpoint what kind of people might want you to select or train to go abroad to certain cultures. But often, again, culture is invisible. We don't tend to recognize it. And to that extent, we can really cause a lot of problems with early return, which is very expensive, let alone all the agita and, and aggravation that it causes from the host of the host culture. So uh, I want to mention also, I have a tight loose mindset quiz on my website uh, that helps people identify their where they veer tight or loose. Again, we all have kind of different context where we are tight and loose, but we can sort of think about, do you generally, are you kind of what Dali would call an order Muppet, like, you know, Kermit the Frog or Bert, or are you a chaos Muppet? Are you more like, you know, Cookie Monster and Ernie? I know um, I veer kind of loose, my husband, who is also Protestant from the Midwest, veers tighter. And, you know, in the household, we kind of, as mentioned earlier, we try to negotiate with the kids or teenagers, because obviously when you're a parent, you want to tighten up everything because you're terrified. Yeah, I wondered. That was, one of my questions was, are all parents tight and are all children loose? Well, you know, actually, a really interesting point. There is a generation effect we found recently. And in fact, people like Plato were even talking about this. Like, oh, the younger generation, they're so loose. He didn't use that term. But it seems to be something that is generational. Because think about it. You don't have as much accountability when you're younger. So you can afford to be looser. But of course, this varies across cultures. Most recently, we've shown as early as three years old, working class and middle class kids differ and how they react to puppets that are violating rules. Because the working class is, has a lot of threat. They need rules and they find rules more useful because they're living in very dangerous areas. They're worried about poverty. As early as three, they're getting the kind of, uh, the training from their parents that rules matter. And when puppets violate those rules, we've shown this in my lab, three-year-old working class kids are more likely to protest. So it varies by group, it varies by culture, um, even if we know that kids are looser than, than their parents. But it's negotiable, so that's the more important point. Give and us I think just it's a, fun to think about. Uh, yeah, I love it. Give us just a minute on um, any advice you have for managing tight, loose conflict. Well, you know, first and foremost, culture starts with the self. So you, it's really thinking about where where are you in terms of tight loose and why? Like, why might you have evolved this? Because there, there, I have two questions about that. Uh, I just told you to do this in a minute, but now I'm going to delay you. <laughs> it's um, fine. But I have two questions about that. One is like the difference between self-assessment and other assessment, meaning I might say, you know, I'm pretty tight. And my wife might say, are you kidding me? You are so loose. And the other yeah. is... Certainly, like with states in the U.S., there are areas in which I'm very tight and there are mm -hmm. areas in which I'm very loose. And so yeah. I would be hard pressed and maybe the loose part of me does not want to put myself in a box, <laughs> but, but well, I would again, be hard pressed can, in saying, am I loose well, or tight? You, yeah, well, I mean, again, it's domain specific. So once we start zooming into different domains, I mean, for example, I'm loose when it comes to how messy I am around the house. And there's no difference in self and other assessment on that. I'm pretty tight in terms of my expectations on how much the kids are gonna work and have a healthy lifestyle. But I'm really loose in terms of their bedtime and their curfew. 
Um, I'm really loose when it comes to language. I constantly cursing. <laughs> My kids have to tell me, watch your language, mom. So this, I mean, I'm tight in this and loose in the same occupation. I'm loose when it comes to coming up with ideas, but you, in academia, you have to be tight in implementing them. But it's a frame. It's a frame. It's like a lens through which you can look at things a in a multiple set of ways. Yes. And then you can right. think about the other. So the step two is like, think about the conflicts you have with your siblings. I'm about to go on vacation. Tight, loose conflict happens a lot on vacation. Right. Any Who advice for managing that? It's the... It's the, it's the, um, uh, what was the TV show with Oscar and Felix? The odd couple. Well, I mean, How do you manage I, it? I study negotiation. So the most important thing is to think about what matters to you the most when it comes to tightness and what can you give up on? Like I can give up on certain domains that I could say, you know what? If my husband really prioritizes that, like loading the dishwasher, he wants it to be really tight. If that's his priority, then we trade off. So it's really thinking about, Really deeply, what domains are you tight or loose in? What domains is, are your family or colleagues or boss tight and loose in? And how can you negotiate? How can you trade off and on high and low priority issues? And I talked about this in the book, but the most important thing is to know the vocabulary and to even be aware of it because when we're not aware of it, we can't negotiate it. And there's something else that's interesting. So if you go, if you say, um, okay, so I'm loose with time and Eleanor, my wife, is tight with time. So we can get into an argument, which we have in the past, about whether it's important to be on time. And the people who are on the tight side will say, of it's like such a stupid argument to be in. Of course it's important to be on time. <laughs> and those of us on the other side might say, actually, it's not. Like you might be in a conversation that's more important than being in time. Or you might be. And so like, and by the way, you get late somewhere and the party hasn't even started yet. So does it really yeah. matter? And I think partly what I'm hearing you say and, and what my answer to is this, is that it's actually, there is no right answer, meaning we will constantly disagree. But if you want to manage that conflict, then you say, wow, it seems like it's really important to you that we be on time. To me, yep. it's not really important to me that I be late. It's just not important to me that I be on time. Yep. But I can, but I will, given that it's so important to you, then I'm going to cross that barrier, that bridge. And we don't have to get into a conversation about whether it's quote unquote important in the abstract. Yeah. And also you can say, are there certain contexts where this is so important to you? You can even further zoom in and say, this is this is the golden rule on these particular occasions, but we're going to loosen up when it comes to when we arrive at a restaurant. But also then you have to, as a really good negotiator, say these domains are really important for me to loosen and you got to loosen up in those domains. So, I mean, again, you have the vocabulary and having the kind of... Just well, loosen up in a domain, right? <laughs> well, you can trade up. Well, yeah, I think Todd gets crazy around the house because it's a mess. And we and he's he definitely would much prefer... He's got three girls, two birds, and a dog that are all pretty messy. But on other domains, he can negotiate the tightness. And so I think, you know, like any negotiation is hard work. It's not going to come easy, but it's so satisfying when you, you know, can really make that work. Uh, and my kids said to me, I didn't even realize this. They said, mom, if we treated each other poorly, you would beat us. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't beat my kids. I'm a nice person. But they sort of got that memo to, that informally through my behavior that this is a really important domain. But they also, like I said, language is not a big deal and, and, and how messy they are is not a big deal. We'll see. Jeanette, my oldest, is going off to college in a couple of days. We'll see how that hand, how our roommate handles that. Actually, I think there's a lot of conflict between roommates on this. It could be something we build into assessments and so forth. Yeah, it would actually be smart to have actually to, to have an assessment to sort of support roommates and managing the dynamic between them. Yeah. 
I love it. We've yeah. been talking with Michelle Gelfand. Her new book is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. Michelle, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank, thank, thank you so you. much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.